everybody doing? So how many people have already had some meals already this weekend? You're not too stuffed, eh? You know? You got some room for some spiritual food this morning? Praise God. Well, Father, we just thank you right now. Before we open your word, we thank you for your presence that's already here in this place this morning. We thank you for your atmosphere of worship. We just thank you for the opportunity that we have and the freedom that we have in this country to be able just to come and gather and just lift up your name. We thank you for how much fun we can have with you while we're here on earth, but we look forward to when we're reunited together with you in heaven where we'll live with you for all eternity. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. We will thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Come on, guys, if this is Thanksgiving weekend, let's be thankful to God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes to live on the inside of us. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you never change. That we can, we can hold on tightly to you because you are a firm foundation. And we thank you, Father, for that. We are thankful this morning. We are grateful in our hearts for all that you are in Jesus name amen and amen Whew. <laughs> oh, I'm just having a good time in his presence this morning you know you you will never experience God to the depths unless you open your heart and allow yourself to go and you know, the more that we condition ourselves to come boldly into his presence, the deeper we find ourselves falling each time. And you know, as, as we have an open heart, as we make room for him, he comes and he fills that space that we give him. No space, no experience. Give space, he comes and fills it. Amen? Well, last week, we started on a new series on the end times. Ah! And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a great time preaching last week. And I love that when I introduced the subject, there was like the audible gasp of, oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I told you last week that this is the first time in 12 years that I've been pastoring here at Word Church that we've ever talked about this topic. And I will tell you exactly why that is. I don't see it as that important. Now, some Christians would very much disagree with me, but this morning we're going to take a look at some different aspects, and you have to understand that the, I put this in the same category as kind of like Jewish history. You know, it's good to know who the kings of Israel and Judah were, but it doesn't affect my salvation. There are some more clear things, there's more sure foundations of which you should focus your time and your energies. And the reason why I want to cover this topic and why we're doing this is because I'm seeing an increase in absolute craziness among Christians about what they're teaching about some of these subjects. And it's just kind of like, have you read the Bible recently? Do you even remember who the God is that you serve? Who do you place your faith in? Him? or a bunch of things that you think you might know. And so one thing that I want to instill in you, because this is not going to be an exhaustive series. This is not, we're not going to cover every topic. We're not going to do a deep dive because that would take us like months. You know, there's so many things that we could talk about, but what I want to instill in you is the posture of heart and the right mindset 
to be able to look at it and open it yourself. Because if you approach anything from the wrong perspective, you can get the wrong idea about it. And any topic in the Bible, you remember who your God is, who you are in relation to him, and the promises that he's given to you because they don't change. All of the promises of God are yes and amen. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever topic of the Bible you look at, you remember who your God is and who you are in relation to it, because that is non-negotiable. And so when we talk about this subject, and if you don't like talking about this stuff, hey, come back in a few weeks and we'll be done with it. You won't have to listen to it for a while. I joke. But, <laughs> sorry, I'm in a quirky mood this morning, and whenever I get in that mood, you know, you never know what to expect. But when we're talking about these subjects, having knowledge of them or hearing teaching on the end times should not produce fear in you. If it is, you're looking from the wrong direction, because God has no fear to give you. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if fear is being produced when you hear about the things that are, uh, people think are going to happen, that is not God. And that is not the clear perspective. Because God has no fear. When you're in the presence of him and his true teaching, you should feel nothing but love and safety, security. When the word is opened properly, faith should rise up not fear. So that's the number one mindset whenever you think about this, is if fear is present, you're looking from the wrong direction. The other thing I want you to keep in mind as we go on is keep the important things, the important things. The cross transcended time. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So if your idea of the end time has to force Jesus to change, it's wrong. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we're going to probably say that about a million times today. You keep the important things, the important things. Right along with that same thought process, though, is you never sacrifice the clear for the unclear. I told last week that we wouldn't be looking at, and we're not again this week, we're not going to look at the book of Revelation today. We're not going to look at the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah. And though there's great things we can pull for them, and later on we may take a few looks at them, but Paul had some more clear instructions about this. And so, should you go with what you might think that John meant, or what Paul specifically said? You never give up the clear for the unclear. It's kind of like that saying that goes a little bit like this. Don't let what you don't know and can't do keep you from doing what you do know and can do. And when it comes to end times theology, or eschatology is the word that we use, don't give up what is a clear picture for what could be. Because anybody who tells you with absolute certainty they know exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, they are deluding themselves. But when we talk about the end times and this type of uh, theology, it 
brings a curiosity. And there is, there should be a natural drive in people to be like, oh, I want to know more. I want to, I want to see more details. And that's exactly what we see reflected in the disciples when Jesus taught on this subject. They were sitting down by the temple and they, he came through and he, as they were walking by the temple, he said, you know, guys, there's going to be a time where this temple, the physical temple that they were walking by is going to be torn, torn down and like there'll be no stone unturned. And then he begins to talk about other end times things. And their response was, tell us when will these things be? So curiosity is a fine thing. And then he says, and what will be a sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so th there's nothing wrong with having a curiosity about these things as long as we keep the true message of the Bible and the good news of Jesus at the forefront. And so th though the disciples had these questions in Matthew 24, they, it would seem to be a continued curiosity for them because even in their last conversation with Jesus, which they didn't know at the time that it was their last conversation, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So again, they're, they're looking to those things. Are you going to bring completion? Are you going to come back down and sit on the throne and be the king of Israel? And he says to them in the next verse, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Which is why we can say for absolute certainty that someone who gives you a date is wrong. Because it's not for you to know the date. Now we talked about, Paul told us last week that we should know the season. But there's a difference between being in the fall and knowing that it's October 11th. Right? And so you can know you're in the season, but you will never know the date. And so Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times as the season the Father has put in his own authority, but he gives them something higher to focus on. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he's saying he redirects their question away from something that really isn't that important, and he points it to what really is. You're about to get filled with power, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, he's going to change your perspectives. He's going to change your drives and your ideas. He took a bunch of cowardly disciples who for the last few weeks have been and hiding and he turned them into evangelists that went all over the world we focus on the things that are important the things that do not change and so jesus redirects them to where their expectation and their focus should be but back in matthew 24 when they had asked him those questions you know when is this going to happen what are the signs to coming he said something similar to them he said in matthew 24 35 he said heaven and earth will pass away. That's a certain article. He says it's going to happen, but my words will be no, by no means pass away. And he said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So we can by extrapolate realize that Jesus didn't even know the date of his return. Now, that's because he was here on this earth living as a man. He did not have full knowledge. He could pull from the Holy Spirit what, the Holy, what God felt he needed at those times, but he didn't have all knowledge. So in this moment, he's answering truthfully. He doesn't even know. It's for the Father. Now, maybe he knows now that he's up in heaven with the Father, the idea, uh, the timing, but as for us as humans, 
we don't, aren't going to know that day and that hour. And the reason why I put emphasis on that is because over the last few years, it seems to be more and more people have been coming out of the woodwork and saying, I've got the date for you to now remember. When this date happens, God's going to return. Jesus is going to come. We're going to go home to heaven with him. There's going to be judgment upon the earth. That's usually where they put more of their emphasis on. You know, it's almost like some Christians want to see the world struggle and go through trials that's not god's mentality or heart that's a heart from the devil he doesn't want to see people suffer and be lost he said that his desire is that all men should be saved and come to his knowledge so if you hear someone speaking from that perspective toss it on the heap now why do i talk about dates and stuff like that is because i'll pick out one just to be an example there was a man just in the last 30, 40 years by the name of Harold Camping who, you know, you'd think after he was wrong the first time he would have stopped. But in the 70s, he decided, you know, I know the date Jesus is returning. He wasn't very popular at the time, so nobody really cared. But by the time May 21st, 1988 rolled around, he had a lot of followers. And he began to tell people that May 21st, that's the date that Jesus is going to return. And then May 21st showed up and nothing happened. So he decided, well, you know, I, I, I must have been wrong. And he went back to his calculating and he quietly said in 94 he'd return. He didn't do it again there. Then 2008, no, he didn't return there. But then he decided to be a little more forceful about it and said, May 21st, 2011, I'm for sure this time, this is the date he's going to return. And millions of people believed him. The amount of Christians that we've heard reports of since that filled up their credit cards because they didn't know they wouldn't have to pay them back because we're going to be with Jesus. One whack job decided that he was going to murder his family just to speed up the process. And so he, May 21st comes and goes and everyone's mad at him. There were people rioting at his place because of all the stupid things they had done with the information that he had given them, which was wrong to begin with. And so he decided to come out with the saying, well, you know, what happened was quietly Jesus, you know, closed the book on those who'd be allowed to be saved. And so no one else can be saved, and the end will come October 21st now. And October 21st came and went, and nothing happened. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> if someone tells you they know the time, run. No one does, because no man will know the date or the time. But Jesus' words before that were more important. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. My words. The things Jesus taught with his disciples, the things that he demonstrated before them, the work that he did, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, these will never change. So they demand a higher focus than some of the craziness you can hear. Because over everything, Jesus should have preeminence. He's the highest focus and the highest ideal. And as we told you last week, the season doesn't change the sun. And if your theology forces you to have to believe Jesus changes, he doesn't. He said in Revelation... This is the only verse from Revelation. Now, we'll maybe hit another one later on. But he said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who was, is, and was, and who is to come, the Almighty, the focus. 
Jesus said that if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So as I told you last week, I'm less concerned with what we will face ahead and more concerned with how we face it as Christians. So this morning, if you're following along in your Bibles, you can turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How y'all doing? That's good because whether you are or not, I was going to continue. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and here we told you last week that Paul taught on the theology of the end times with all of the, t- the churches that he established. We see that reflected in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We see that when he talks with 1 and 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy, if you teach on these things, you'll be a good minister, which means he's wanting Timothy to do what he does. So we can make the assumption pretty securely that Paul most likely taught on these things already to the Corinthians when he established that church. And so as we told you with First and Second Thessalonians, a lot of the content in there was Paul answering problems and questions that they had. And First Corinthians is even more so that. Paul was getting reports about some of the ridiculousness that was happening in the Corinthian church, so he wrote a letter to them to answer their questions and to put them back in the right focus. So we see a bunch of teaching on, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, we see speaking in tongues, we see the private gift, and we see the corporate tongues and interpretation within a body. Paul told them, you know, you don't just come and just speak in tongues the entire time, but then he says, you know, but I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He was bringing balance and teaching and answering answering questions and problems that had arisen. And so uh, chapter 15 is the same thing. And I love how Paul, before he goes on to even speak about the end times problem he wants to address, he starts this way in verse number one. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you were also saved If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that, what is he talking about? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He's bringing the proper focus. And he was buried, and that he rose again, and on the third day, according to the scriptures. So he covers the foundation of which I just finished telling you. Everything about the end times or anything should all be centered around the work of Jesus. So he says, he, you know, he came, he died, he was buried, he was risen again on the third day. And not only that, he says, and he was seen by Cephas, who was Peter, and then by the twelve. And then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains to the present. And some have, but some have fallen asleep. So he's saying, this is not just an isolated incident as a lot of the world would like you to believe. They'd like, to, like you to believe that, you know, Jesus was seen by just a few people who then went on and lied about his resurrection they hid his body paul is telling us here that at the point of his writing the good portion of over 500 people that he knows of that have seen they're still alive they're still kicking though he says some have died so when we think about just the idea of jesus being a real person who this actually happened don't listen to the world's garbage that says oh you know those just a small group of people made it up paul's saying that 500 people saw him And then he says, and he was seen by James and then by all of the apostles. And then the last of all, he was also seen by me. 
as one born out of due time. Now we know that Paul didn't meet him during his earthly ministry. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and straightened Paul up out and got him on the right direction. And he says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. I love how Paul starts the topic. He puts the focus on Jesus where it should be. He reminds people that regardless of whatever your past is, God's grace is enough. And because of his grace, Paul said, it didn't make me lazy, it made me work harder than everybody else. It's because of the, because of the grace of God, I am what I am. I do what I do. The message of Jesus in any topic when it's unveiled in the word of God should make you want to do more, should make you want to know more, should make you want to reach out to those who and take as many people with you as you go. It should make you the best evangelist around. When you understand the heart of God, when it gets deposited on the inside of you, there's nothing that you won't want to do for Jesus. So therefore, because of those things, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. That's quite the introduction Paul gives the topic. And now the topic he's about to address, we actually mentioned a little bit last week when we were looking at First and Second Thessalonians. And we were focusing our time in First Thessalonians chapter 5, but right before... In the latter half of chapter 4, Paul is having a conversation with them about the return of Jesus. And he says this in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul is talking about the return of Jesus, and as I told you last week, we don't have to worry about missing. When it happens, you will know. It's going to be quite the event. And trust me, with how small our world has become with media and everything, when the sky splits and the trumpets go and the angels come with Jesus, you will not miss it because no one will be able to look away. So the Lord will come back, but then at the end of this verse, he mentions an event that's going to happen when he comes, and that's the dead in Christ will rise first. We get an actual zombie apocalypse, but it looks a little different than how the movies portray it. And this shouldn't surprise us because a similar event on a smaller scale happened when Jesus died. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So recently dead people, when, Jesus, when the power of God left the temple, you know, up until that point, it was localized where God was, was in the holiest of holies in the temple. And he decided, I don't want to be living in a temple. I want to live everywhere in people. And so he burst out of there, ripped the veil apart, and just the power of him moving location opened the graves. How much more that when Jesus splits the skies and comes back to return for his sons and daughters, that the same thing begins to happen, and all of those who have died between Jesus and then get up. 
And that's the topic Paul is about to address in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So apparently, Paul has now gotten wind, whether it was a messenger, whether it was a letter, whether it's something we don't know, that the church in Corinth believes that this is not going to happen. How is it that some say that this is the dead don't rise? He says, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Paul is like the king of sass and sarcasm. I love it that we, sometimes we read the Bible so one-dimensionally. You need to understand the depth of the sass he's given them right now. And he says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ hasn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone forever, done, gone. Say goodbye to your loved ones who are in a grave. You'll never see them again. That's what Paul was saying to them. If in this life only we ha have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most pitiable. Or pathetic is a better translation of that word. So Paul's telling us that if you don't believe this is going to happen, it's like there's a larger chain reaction that you go back. If we don't rise up at the end, then Jesus didn't because he's tying the two events of the same similarity together. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. What does the first fruits mean? Meaning the first one of a bunch of others who are going to do the same. Yeah. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You need to remember that death is not the end. The Bible says we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But guess what? He's going to reunite you with your body even if you die ahead of time. He's going to bring it back just like when he rose from the dead. He had, it was in his glorified body. You know, they, they said that the disciples were gathered together hiding and all of a sudden Jesus just walked through the wall and was like, hey guys, and they're like, ah! And he's like, peace, it's just me, guys. It's just me. <laughs> He had taken off the physical restrictions and he had put on heaven's speed of movement. And so there is an expectation that should be in the hearts of Christians that this is not all there is. There's more that's going to take place. You're right now, you'll live for a season here in this natural world, but you will live for eternity with Jesus, like Jesus, yeah. ruling and reigning with him. Yeah. And so in verse 21, he says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. You notice the first man is lower case the second man is uppercase he's contrasting adam death spread yeah. god told adam and eve in the day that you eat of the fruit you will die it took them about 900 years to figure out how to do it physically but they died spiritually in that moment as well but he said that caused death and jesus ended it 
Through him came the resurrection, being the first fruits. Verse 22 says, For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So as he is, you're going to be that way too, physically, not just spiritually, as we are right now. Verse 23 says, But each in his own order. Number one, Christ, the first fruits, meaning he's going to do it first. And then number two, afterwards, those who are at Christ's at his coming. Then number three comes the end. Meaning until this happens, you don't have to worry about the end. That's a pretty dramatic sign to look for. For so these people that say, well, you know, all of this is already passed, and we're, you know, I heard one person recently say, you know, we're just living out the millennial reign of Christ. I'm like, if that's the case, this sucks. If this is God's idea of a millennial reign, this sucks. God, your idea of good is not my idea of good. No, no. People have just misinterpreted things. But if we jump back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and start Paul's train of thought that we mentioned a few seconds ago, he said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So everyone who has passed between Jesus and now are coming back with him. Right now they're spiritually with him in heaven waiting for the end of time and they are going to come with him to be reunited with their bodies. God's going to recreate them. In verse 15 he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died. Meaning they got to get reunited with their bodies before we do. And it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus will always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's not enough. Paul just ends it with, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Not Scare the bejesus out of everybody with your untimes theology about how everyone's going to die in a river of blood and there's going to be no. You got to keep things in context and focus and put the emphasis where it's supposed to be. There, this should light a fire in the hearts of Christians that, my goodness, I don't need to just be worried about this existence. There is more. He's empowered me to live and be victorious right here, right now. But I'm going to step over in Christ and going to live for eternity with him. So back to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. In verse 35, he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come you know i kind of picture what they're thinking in their heads of the decay of what happens to bodies when you bury them they're thinking more of what we would see in our zombie movies you know you know someone with their jaw you know what happened to that body like he says how are the how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come so this is a question they had i don't even have to add humor into that paul paul said it He said, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. 
And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. What he's saying is like when you take a seed, you don't take the whole husk of corn, you don't take the whole stalk and bury it, you take a seed, and the seed produces harvest. And just like Jesus was buried and planted physically and rose up spiritually in a new form, so the same thing will happen to us. It says, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. There are also celestial bodies or heavenly-styled bodies, and there are terrestrial bodies, meaning earth-bound bodies, which we exist in right now. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. They're not to be compared. Yes, our bodies are pretty awesome here on earth, but they're going to be rated for new speeds. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit corrupt incorruption. Your body that you have right now is not designed for heaven. It's designed for earth. So he's going to change it. You need a body built for different speeds. You got to raise up that speed a little. You know how Jesus just kind of like slipped in and like, hey guys, you know, what's, what's the difference? Who knows in the future? Maybe you can be like, I'm going to spend the day on Mars today. And be there. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing things in there. But your body is going to be different because it's going to be styled for heavenly things. Because this says heaven and earth will pass away. It will happen. We're not going to be here forever. Peter tells us, he says, you may live here, but this ain't your home. So if we drop down to verse 51 and start coming in for a landing. He says, behold, I, I tell you a mystery. That we're not all going to sleep. And when he says sleep, he means die. He says, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell or Hades, where is your victory? So from a Christian perspective, we don't have anything to fear. At the end, things are going to happen. You don't need to be wrapped up in the hype and the craziness. You've got nothing to fear. But this should build an expectancy and an urgency in our hearts. You know that the, the, the New Testament, the early church, they lived with an urgency that soon and very soon, he's coming quickly, he's coming back. And that helped drive them to spread around the world to reach as many as they could because there will be a time when there is no more time and you can only work while it is day. <laughs> That's what we read last year, last week in 1 Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. You're not children of the night. You're not children of destruction. You are children of now and we've been called to work. Just like he said to his disciples when they asked, when is this going to happen? Are you going to come sit on the throne? He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. We focus on the important things. I love what Revelations ends with 
In chapter 22, verse 12, in the middle of the chapter, it says, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. Maybe that's why Paul started and ended with him. Because it's true. And then John adds, blessed are those who do his commandments. What are his commandments? Well, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and, you know, all these other people too. And in all of that, you fulfill the law and the prophets. So what are his commandments? He's saying just love those around you. Christians need to get a hold of that. My goodness, I can't stand some of the annoyingness that Christians are. Yes, they may not live like you because they don't know what you know. Give them love. Feed them the word and they will change. But he said, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter through the gates into the city. This is just one aspect of things that we can have hope in in Jesus. This is what the future of the body of Christ looks like. This is something that has to happen before the end can happen. And so when we talk about the end times, you've got nothing to fear. But in everything, Jesus should be the foundation. He should be the start and he should be the end. And maybe you're watching today via the internet and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. Now is the day to do it. Don't wait till the end. Do it now. Walk with him and enjoy a wonderful life with his faith and his promises now. We would love to pray with you right now. Right, church? We want to pray with them. Why don't we just go ahead and say, Father, Father we thank you for Jesus. And right now I receive him. I thank you that you raised him from the dead. I thank you for the expectation that I can have in him. And all your good promises. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, we would love for you to get in contact with us. We'd love to get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources into your hands. But guys, man, there's just... There's such an excitement in my heart as I think about these things that this world is not the end-all, be-all, and we can get so wrapped up in what this existence lives, but we have been called to something higher. So let's shift our eyes off of the mundane every day and put our hearts onto God. Amen? Pastor Robin.